Welcome to The Loins of History. My name is Jay. I'm joined by my co-host, Colin. And this episode is on political corruption, money, and PACs, or political action committees. We're going to be talking about the history, continuing our series on American political history. And the question we want to answer by the end of this episode, or at least have a better idea of, is how much money is too much money in politics? So Colin, help us understand money in politics. We could spend a long time on this topic, but that's a great intro. And you know, it's funny, I saw like a, I think it was like a meme or something like that, but it was basically poking fun at um, Western countries rated you know, their corruption level. And it was, they were all extremely low. And the joke was, well, it's rated extremely low in levels of corruption because yeah. we just legalized it. And, um, you know, there's an element of truth to that. Um, and here we're going to walk through that because it didn't always start out that way. Um, so when we talk about money and politics, there's really two main um, groups that we're going to be talking about. And the first one is PACs or political action committees. And those are those specifically deal with elections, getting candidates elected and issues that they represent. And the other is interest groups slash lobbyists. And those are once a member of Congress or uh, mostly Congress is elected and actually in office, that's where lobbyists and interest groups funnel their money. And we'll get into that in a second. So with all that being said, let's let's walk back and go through the history of political action committees first. So political action committees started um, in the 1940s, actually. So FDR was coming up for election for his fourth term. Yes, you heard that correctly, his fourth term. And obviously, we've talked about FDR in our first episode on political parties, and he was definitely a friend to the working man. And But by the 1944 election, um, there was... I'm not going to say like animosity, but things had changed since he was first elected in 1932. World War II was, uh, the tide had turned, the economy had recovered, um, and there were questions about his health. Um, and that added a little bit of uncertainty, and labor groups and labor unions wanted him reelected. So they wanted to obviously contribute their money and get behind him in order to get him reelected. Um, in order to do so, there were some rules put in place, and they formed a political action committee to help FDR get reelected, and that's how political action committees came about, uh, came to be. So you can thank labor unions because they were the first political action huh. committee. So that it's slow. The evolution from there was pretty slow and mostly ancillary uh, when it came to political elections. So, um, but in 1971, there was the Federal Election Campaign Act. And what this did was set some rules for how much money PACs were actually able to contribute. Um, this is important because nowhere, at no point in our history, had we had any official rules around how much money could be given to, to um, politicians. But Congress felt at this point that it was enough of an issue that they needed to rein it in and start setting up some rules. All right, so fast forward about 30 years, and then we're going to have what's called the McCain-Feingold Bipartisan Reform Act of 2002. 
uh, sponsored by McCain and Feingold. Um, this was in response to what had been an a perception of corruption within the government, even though there had been, um, you know, legislation passed in 1971, um, there was a lot of public distrust, and this was designed to combat that. And there's the question of hard money versus soft money. Um, the goal of this act was to get politicians to quote stand behind their message, so um, they would have to spend their own money or their campaign's money on. Colin, is that when the I noticed around that time frame, all ads kind of started saying like, "My name is such and such, and I support this message." Or it, be, blah, it, blah, it blah. started taking started? off then because you st- then it you know it shifted to the soft money where now you had rather than a, a political action committee say, "I'm going to donate this money to say the Republican Party and John McCain." I'm just going to get this ad and I'm going to run it without an affiliation of them. It just say, I'm going to slam this politician or this uh. politician stands for this. You know, they'll find a key issue in say like a swing state, you know, Florida, Ohio, some of those swing states, they'll find a key issue and say that, and it'll, you know, you'll hear at the end of it paid for by, yeah. um, you know, this group or whatever very you know that's where you started seeing because yeah. and there's some criticism of the diane or of the um mccain feingold bipartisan reform act in that you know it's almost like um prohibition in the sense that it forced big money to go elsewhere rather than you know them give it to a politician and be kind of visible it's sort of went into these third parties and they lost control of it so that was one of the criticisms level at it but um in 2003, a lower court basically upheld it, and then in 2010, that uh, it basically was unraveled in a Supreme Court decision. So, and so Speech Now versus the um, Federal Election Committee, and then Citizens United are responsible for essentially unraveling the McCain-Feingold Act and creating what's called super PACs. So. In this decision, so the Supreme Court held that the First Amendment barred a federal law preventing corporations and unions from spending their own funds to influence the outcome of elections. Basically, they said, hey, it's a violation of free speech. It doesn't matter if this union or this corporation has a ton of money. They can spend that money however they want to spend it. Mm-hmm. And if they want to spend that money backing a corporation, they're protected under the First Amendment to go ahead and do that. Because they're exercising their free speech to exactly. To so basically, it, it gave big business a means to don't you know they'll create super PACs and they can donate to these super PACs and it's unlimited amounts of money. So that becomes an issue. Hmm. We'll get to in a second. So just to summarize that that quick um, lowdown on PACs and super PACs before we start getting into because I think 2010 when the with the creation of super PACs, that's where you start to see this shift in money. And I mean, it's, I don't want to say tectonic or over-exaggerated, but it's, it's massive. Um, there's, according to the federal elections committee, mm-hmm. there are um, a few different types of PACs. So there's um, separate segregated funds. Basically, if I form a PAC, I have to be a member of um, a committee or I have to be a member of an organization in order to donate to that PAC. There's non-connected committees, uh, as the name suggests. Uh, you're not sponsored or connected to any of the um, entities, so you can solicit contributions from basically anybody. 
There's super packs. Uh, we'll get into more of that in a second. Mm-hmm. There's hybrid packs, which are basically a super pack, but they also have a separate bank account that is um, it is subject to all of the statutory um, limitations and rules. And then there's what's called a leadership pack. And a leadership pack is uh, basically what congressmen and um, different politicians will form when they want they're seeking higher office. So um, it can be directly or indirectly uh, financed and controlled by them, but it, you, it's actually a very common practice for somebody that says, hey, I want to run for Senate, I'm going to form a leadership pack. Very common. So those are the different types, but uh, hmm. let's let's dive into super PACs. I do think it's really interesting that free speech is what has kept, or rather what has allowed these PACs to you know, continue on in the first base in the first place. And I'm actually inclined to agree with that, that it seems very much within someone's free speech rights to, if I want to go out as an individual citizen and promote a political candidate, I'm perfectly free to do that. I would even extend that to a corporation or a business or something like that to say like it, we as a corporation endorse candidate X because they are pro my business. Therefore we're going to endorse them. Uh, So where my head's at right now is thinking, okay, where something very, it, it feels like there's something very wrong about PACs and super PACs and money influencing politics so like, where does this all go wrong? You know what I mean? So on the surface, I tend to agree with you. Like, yeah, this should be free. You know, I this is me exercising my right. Yeah. But it's much more nuanced. And you can, and you know, to our listeners, you can go back and listen to our episode on free speech because it, it kind of goes to the same argument of, well, money, not all speech is equal. And when I have, let's say, a couple million dollars and I'm going to donate that money to a political candidate, is my voice now louder? And does my voice now drown out 50,000 other people who just can't make that kind of contribution? So I think of it kind of like this analogy. If you were to join a country club, you would probably pay you know, anywhere from 10 to 50 to $100,000 a year to be part of that country club. That money does not necessarily get you uh you're not that's not paying for all the amenities i mean you're going to get nice stuff but it's really paying to keep people out it's paying to get access to the people that are also at the country club so when you hear like well i can get a dinner i can go to this dinner for this political candidate and there's different tiers to what my meal is well i'm not paying for that meal i'm not paying a thousand dollars for a steak dinner it might be decent, but I'm paying $1,000 to go shake hands with somebody. Somebody else there is paying $30,000 to get 20 minutes of time with a political candidate. And that FaceTime is where I think you start getting, um, this is where that, quote, corruption and where it starts drowning out you know, the average person, the average American's mm-hmm. voice. Um, and it raises an ethical question for these super PACs, especially. Um, as you start donating more money, um, are you under some kind of obligation to that donor? Now, do they have some kind of sway over you? You owe them, you know, they, the uh, proportion of large donations over the course, since 2010, 
um, has absolutely skyrocketed. Where if you look at um, small donations, it's pretty much plateaued. So small donations basically being your average Joe's donating a couple bucks um, to PACs and, you know, just to different parties, even super PACs, uh, but large donations. So we're talking tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars um, has more than doubled since 2010. My point in saying all this is we need to be very careful with this to, to track what is too much money. Are there limits? I honestly think, to your point, that PACs were designed and created for the common good. But there was restrictions on them. So even if, if Bill Gates and I have an issue on something and Bill Gates can donate a million dollars, Bill Gates is going to get some FaceTime. I'm not. Is Bill Gates' voice in our democracy, in our republic, you know, is his voice more valuable than mine? Well, according to his checkbook, it is. And that's what we need to be careful of. Hmm. You know, that's a really good point because, again, on the free speech thing, free speech isn't unlimited and it is supposed to be checked by the common good. Democracy in order for it to function properly, it relies upon every individual citizen participating in the process equally, right? Like a pure democracy is something that we would see in Athens. You would literally have every citizen showing up to the political event and literally anybody could speak. Now, we're in a representative democracy where, uh, you know, it's not it's not practicable for or practical for every individual citizen showing up and participating. So we elect representatives. If those elected representatives are being influenced unequally, right, by the and in this regard, being influenced by the wealthy, then we've created an imbalance in our democracy and the, and the democracy is not functioning the way that it should. That's, that's where I think people who had traditionally been pro-capitalist, you know, whether you're far right, far left, whatever, it is something you need to consider and ask the question of, well, why don't we have limits on this? Why did we suddenly take this out? And, you know, to, I think I was saying it earlier about how we we've spent more um, over the, you know, the large donations have increased. Well, the 2020 election was the most expensive. They spent over $10.5 billion on the presidential election. 10 point. Most of that money was not coming from Joe Schmo America. So where's that money coming from? Why is it go? Why are wealthy corporations? And that's the thing we need to think about when this quote, big money and large donations are coming through. It's not, even really necessarily uh, in the interest of those employees. It's, you know, obviously for a publicly traded company, their interest lies with the shareholders. Who's the largest shareholder? Well, it's also, you know, and then we're going to get into, I'm going to get out of my depth here, but, you know, those largest shareholders are also very, very wealthy people or holding, you know, you've heard of BlackRock, Vanguard. Um, So whose interest is really being represented here? It's not oh, well, the citizens of Bank of America, you know, or the, excuse me, the employees of Bank of America, it's like, well, no, Bank of America and those who own stock in Bank of America and who have loans with Bank of America and bank and invest with Bank of America. 
and a lot of that big money tends to be in a very small circle. So one of the great things about representative democracy is we all have an equal voice and can represent and can elect a representative who is truly representative of us, not their corporate sponsorship. Long and short of, of PACs and super PACs, basically, um, we need to ask ourselves, is this, an, is this too much money being spent? 2020 was the most expensive election in recent in history. 2024, I guarantee you, is going to be even more expensive. It's just, and you know, some of that has some something to do with inflation, but uh, it will be the most. Ex- <laughs> it will be yeah. the most expensive election coming up. Mark my words; it'll be the most expensive. They're going to spend more money. They're going to go all out, and you know, part of that in the 70s, they didn't have as many mediums of communication. Um, it's funny you hear the, the term stumping or giving a stump speech. It's because uh, politicians used to give, you know, they'd stand on a, a stump, a literal stump, just so they could elevate themselves a little bit and give a speech to the the rabble, the masses right. that were around them. Now it's, well, I've got to have um, an entire social media team running my Twitter account. I've got to have all the, you know, I have to buy ads on TV, ads on the internet. I need to hire analytics companies to, to run targeted ads. Uh, probably heard of like Cambridge Analytica in 2016 who targeted mm-hmm. you know, targeted Facebook ads. It's really nothing new. That's something every corporation does. It's just now they're doing it to uh, trigger your voting habits basically and get data on you. Um, hmm. So there's a lot more that needs to, money that needs to be spent in order to be competitive. And, you know, I think the biggest cure for this would be a well-informed and educated populace. Not just a populace that gets cranked out and passes K-12. I mean, a populace that truly understands the political process and the issues and the policies, not the narrative. Mm, So this gets into it again. I think when you start having these super PACs that have literally unlimited, they can donate as much money as they want. And there's so many mediums of communication. What they are doing is not communicating the policies. they're communicating the narrative and they're shaping the narrative. So they're spending this money in order to get you to feel a certain way about a candidate. I mean, they might talk a little bit about the issues, but at the end of the day, the little bit they drop on issues is really in order to um, get you to feel a certain way. And the antidote, I I really believe, is having an educated, well-informed popular, a well-informed, not well-informed on the narrative, well-informed on the issues, um, who can rationally Mm -hmm. think through things. And you can't do that with as much money being spent on shaping people's feelings. It it, it just can't be done. You know, that's a really good point, because I I would even take it one step further on what you call the antidote, um, an educated and a participant paying person like you need to That's a you need to be qualifier. informed what do you mean you can be the most educated person and be full of intellect but if you don't show up to vote or you don't if you don't do anything you don't do anything right. you don't go to town hall even in local elections i mean there are special interest and we'll get into we'll get into interest groups and lobbyists and things like that but though these kind of things to they do exist at local and state and local levels too. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, no, you're fine. Which, I, and I think everything you're saying is an important point when we talk about corruption in the government. Uh, I'm not aware of any evidence to show that PACs, super PACs, what have you, are like buying votes. That's not the kind of corruption we're talking about. There's plenty of evidence to show that they're buying 
Facebook ads to tarnish the reputation of a certain candidate, that they're out there buying, you know, hiring people to show up at polling places to go put signs out. Like it's all in the influence business. It's not in the hard like ballot stuffing, although that does take place. It, that's just not what the exactly the significant money gets spent on. It gets spent on influencing the individual to make a decision, not artificially producing decisions themselves. If that makes sense. it does. So there's a great documentary on Netflix about uh, it's unrelated to politics, really. I, well, they do throw some political stuff in there, and they call them like the extreme centrists. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. (laughs) Like these centrist extremists. But what they were Mm -hmm. trying to illustrate was that um, social media, big business, they they have these algorithms that basically are creating – they are influencing your decision at a level that you can't even really perceive. So you're, you're, you're not able to help it. And that, and that's in consumption, you know, consuming products, you know, it's like you see an ad pop up of something you mentioned uh, in passing. You're like, well, how, how did, how did Amazon know I was thinking about this? Well, it heard you mentioned this keyword and it built, and then it saw that you liked this. It's influencing you. They're not necessarily bribing you or demanding that you buy this. They're just, constantly laying these little these little dopamine hits these little drops everywhere yeah. and it's you almost become unable to break out of the cycle and that's what this big money does in these elections you got to get it out of there it, it, right yeah so whereas you know it's it's sorry, go ahead so it's funny because i always feel like we have to speak to the conspiracy theorist <laughs> Like in you said episode, in one of those right? earlier episodes, they are the happiest people on earth. They got it all figured happiest out. Happiest people in the world. Here's, here's what I know about um, biz, big, business, big, big, big businesses and the government, etc. They simultaneously don't care about you and desperately need you. And what I mean by that is when it comes to like the government and spying is the government spying on you? Well, are they collecting data on you? Absolutely. It came out a while back years ago that Yahoo was giving the government information about its users. And that was a big thing, right? Like that's, are they collecting information on you? Yes. Do they care? You know, let's bring up John boy and Billy again. They're my favorite, favorite John Doe, right? Do they give a flying rip about they being the government or big business? Do they give a flying rip about what John Boy and Billy thinks only in so far as it makes them money? If you're a business or if you're government in so far as, you know, depending on who's collecting the information, uh, you know, helping them do their job. The point, the point I'm trying to make is like when, when Alexa is listening to you, Alexa is listening to you so that it can optimize the ads that are shown to you because these companies are paying for that advertising space so that they can make money off of you. They need you, but they don't care about you. The greatest (laughs) in regards to that, in the, you know, the whole building out a better algorithm and, and all this, the, if something is free, you are the product. So it, you know, when we talk about social media, it's all free. It's all free. Hey, here's this free stuff. Um, 
you're the product. Something, somebody is making money. Somebody is paying somebody to make it free, and you're the product. You going and buying that, and I don't want to go too far down like uh, how that pertains to the government. Draw whatever conclusion you want, but if something's free, you're the product, and you should remember that. So, right with elections, big money, they're putting it in there because their interests are at my, at heart. And speaking of interests, um, you know, this is that is very election centric. So PACs, super PACs, there is something. So a super PAC, even though it is unlimited funds that they can, you know, they can contribute, it is they still have to disclose that to the the FEC, the Federal Elections Committee or Commission. So they can still see who donates that money, and there is a record of you having to stand behind said politician. The Koch brothers. They get, you know, they're always big, big donors. You know, they are, but because they get behind it, their name is there. There's something called a 501c4. And this is the uh, the dark money that you hear about or you don't hear about. The dark money uh, contributions can't, aren't reported. So even though they operate like a super PAC in that they can create um, ads, they can help finance campaigns you don't have to don't uh, disclose where that money came from so and you know this is we hear about foreign election interference i've we've heard you hear about it once a day every day since 2016 but this is a legitimate way of how a foreign government or foreign entity could influence an election by spending by contributing money and there's all sorts of backdoor channels and money laundering and i i i haven't dug that deep down the conspiracy hole but they could donate money to a 501c4 and it's dark money and nobody knows where that money came from, but it has an intended effect of financing a specific campaign. Do we know why 501c34s exist in the first place? Well, I mean, it's supposed to be for tax exempt status. I know, um, like, you, you know, a nonprofit, it, it, they're basically, they're nonprofits that are set up. So, um, how they they came about and they were able to kind of bend these rules. It probably falls under the free speech um, ruling that the Supreme Court gave that basically allowed the formation of super PACs in the first place. Hmm. So like- You're right, because 501c3 is a nonprofit business, right? Yeah. And, you know, you know, churches operate under the, you know, the 501c nonprofit, you know, if it's a an organization that's for the greater good, they don't, you know, goodwill, 501c. Um, that's hmm. kind of what they profess, uh, but, um, in practice, it might be a little shadier and it's something to be aware of. I don't think if you were to ask most people what a 501c4 does and what dark money is in elections, nobody would have any idea. Right. They might throw out like, oh, the Saudis are giving money to so-and-so or the Russians, they finance Trump's campaign. Well, maybe, <laughs> but this is how they do it. And right. unless you know the means by which they're doing it, it's going to be really tough to stop it. Um, so, I mean, and here's an example of where somebody got caught because there was a politician in, I think it was Miami. He basically set up a super PAC for himself and was taking money, um, from, and I can't remember the country it was from, but basically they were real estate investors and they wanted favorable, um, zoning laws for them to develop the land. And they were donating money through to him through his super PAC that he would take those funds. Of course he got caught. Uh, I mean, he tried, you know, they tried to hide the money, but he got caught. So, the, you know, his biggest mistake was he used a super PAC instead of a 501c4. And there's a couple other cases of people being caught um, setting up a super PAC and, you know, some 
foreign funds trying to come through and you know they all they always end up getting caught but 501c4 don't have to disclose the donors interesting very interesting okay so we talked a little bit about PACs and super PACs and kind of the natural evolution of those but that's election specific what happens when a politician is elected and in office um well that's where interest groups and, and lobbyists come in so an interest group and, and a lobbyist, it's pretty straightforward what they actually do. They lobby on behalf of a particular interest. So, um, you know, an interest group could be like the NRA, the ACLU. They have specific interest. They go and there's some pros to um, interest groups and lobbyists. They're not all bad necessarily. Um, what they do is they, they can go in and they on, you know, their, their constituents, their members, their donors, they can go in and um, advocate for a specific group. I mean, you think about like whatever you think about guns, the NRA does do a lot of lobbying for gun rights. The ACLU does do a lot. The AARP, they do do a lot on behalf of elderly people or of aging Americans, I think. So there is some good. The problem becomes those politicians are no longer um, loyal or representative of their constituents. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. That's that is one way for an American citizen to participate in the political process. Is you know, it's like, well, I don't want to go contact my representative. Like, I don't want to go stand at a protest or a right. demonstration or something like that. <clears throat> I'm going to pay. Or I'm going to donate a hundred bucks, ten bucks, a dollar to said interest group, and they're going to go contact this representative. They're going to go stand, you know, blah blah blah, and they're going to do such and such on my behalf. So it's not a bad idea. It, it's not a bad idea. It, again, like PACs, they're not necessarily a bad idea. It's when you start. It's when the money becomes too large, and suddenly the interests no longer align with the reason it started out. So, it, like. An interest group is going to have, they are going to be able to concentrate a team of lawyers, a team of experts, information, and get that information. Like, not nobody, you're right, to, as an average citizen, they don't have time to sit around and pour through the legality of something or the, the return on investment of uh, this bill that they want sponsored. They just don't have time. But this interest group does. They have the experts. They can provide that to a polit you know uh, a politician somewhere um, like I said where it gets kind of dicey is when um, those interest groups basically start um, reviewing bills and writing bills on behalf of those congressmen which actually does happen um, you know especially at lower level elections um, I mean it happens in Congress now if you have like 24 hours to read a thousand pages uh, who wrote all the who wrote those thousand pages and um, who's actually reviewing them? You know it, right? Nobody is it, exactly. Well, nobody, nobody that's voting. <laughs> the on one it. person that wrote them, yeah, the one per, uh, or the team of lawyers that wrote them and then gave them to a congressman to or a congresswoman to put their name on and distribute and yeah. you know for us Here's to vote on. Points. So, because I guarantee you, the people that are voting on it on your behalf have not read all of it, and you right. know we see grandstanding about that all the time. Um, Dude, I, I still think one of the best recommendations that I've heard you say on this podcast is one page bills. One page, <laughs> you know, I, I highly doubt it'll ever happen, but it's a great idea. Yeah. It, unfortunately, it won't. But th that's the thing. It, it's so much simpler. It, 
you don't need a you know some i get it everything else could be like an addendum maybe uh, i don't even want to get into that because i don't like the idea of that I, I want the one page i feel like you can do the government's job should not they should not overcomplicate things beyond a reasonable amount you know they're not the they are not the experts um, most people in America are better at running their daily lives than what Congress can do. Yeah. I, I just, every time they create a massive uh, bill that has all sorts of language, it ends up getting convoluted and law. People complain, you know, perfect example, people complain about the tax code. Well, why don't we simplify it? Well, we don't really want to do that because then we'd have to change all of it. It's like, well, you um, wouldn't have to raise yeah. taxes, just simplify it. You want to take out the loopholes, just yeah. say, hey, here's a flat 10% tax on all sales. Can't get away with it. Yeah. Lawyer way, you know, get a great, you can't get a great accountant and a lawyer out of that. I'm sorry. You don't need to raise any taxes. <laughs> just make it easy for everybody. Flat 10%. Boom. Guess what? All the wealthy that are ducking taxes in the Cayman Islands, they can't do it. Guess what? Your average Joe isn't going to get audited by the IRS because they forgot some form to attach and they couldn't afford to take it down to H&R Block or something like that. Right. Which, by the way, everyone should look up where most people actually get audited and who gets audited the most. It's not the billionaires. They have great lawyers yeah, to avoid not. that. Yeah, seriously. The uh, I was thinking, I remember way, this was a long time ago, so forgive me if, I'm, if I mess this up, but in uh, reading uh, Livy's Lives of Noble Romans and Greeks, right? And I think he talks about, he kind of does this, lawgiver thing and i don't remember the gentleman's name but he talks about one of the guys that gave sparta i think it was sparta it's laws and one of them was the rule that like the currency was this humongous like stone and it, and the whole reason was like he basically got rid of greed you know wink wink nod nod got rid of greed in this city because it just became completely unreasonable to amass this wealth because the, the, the denominator was this massive rock. <laughs> and, and, and it's like, it's a great idea because if you, if you think of it and, you know, going back to the one page bill, it's like, if we were to come up with a rule that was like, all right, every bill has to be one page and they will be, each page has to be voted on independently. It would force politicians that you have to come up with a simple rule and there's no more pork. There's no more like throwing on all this random stuff. Cough, cough. The current, the last bill that just got passed. It's <laughs> the inflation raising <laughs> that act. No, that has nothing. Yeah. That has nothing to do with lowering inflation. <laughs> uh, you know, it seems silly on the outside. But it is, it's silly to prove a point. And the point is, is our laws need to be simple and understood and voted on independently. To quote William Shakespeare, brevity is the soul of wit. That applies to more than just humor, but it applies, it complied to, to everything. Brevity is the soul of wit. If you want a great bill, make it short, make it simple, make it applicable. It's uh, applicable. It's enforceable. There you go. It's easy. And your average everyday American can be like, oh, they just passed this bill. Let me look it up on Twitter. And there it is in a tweet. If you, yeah, if you, if you can't tweet out the bill, <laughs> it doesn't pass. Yeah. Um, the uh, lu uh, lucid brevity has always been something I've wanted to attain and mm. can never seem to attain. <laughs> 
It's a paradox. In both speech, in writing, in thought, you name it. It's a paradox. The smarter you are, the less you have to say. Bro, that's life-changing. There you go. (laughs) Which, so we're done with the episode. (laughs) Let's end it on a high note. Well, I do want to talk about, (laughs) I was kind of trans, I don't know where we got off on that tangent, but to bring it back to- um, One page bills, I'm sorry. One page, uh, interest groups. Yeah, I think I was mentioning interest groups and lobbyists, writing bills, being a little too involved in bill writing. Um, So what they, so there's something called an iron triangle of politics, and this- Mm. This is where a lot of money flows. And you've heard a couple of terms like revolving doors. So basically, in an iron triangle in politics, you have Congress, you have interest groups, and you have the bureaucracy. So think the FDA, the EPA, any sort of agency or administration that can regulate things, uh, but is not necessarily elected. So how it works in the, you know, say in the bottom left, you have interest groups and they will, um, yeah, they'll give electoral support to Congress in exchange for friendly legislation and oversight. So I think these these interest groups lobby on behalf of a, a certain politician. They try and get them reelected. They um, make them look favorable in the eyes of their constituents. They give them electoral support. They get friendly legislation and oversight back. Now, that interest group is going to take that congressional support via their lobbying and give it to the bureaucracy in exchange for low regulation and, quote, special favors. Now, the relationship between Congress and bureaucracy is going to be Congress provides, now because of the work of the interest group, is going to give funding to a bureaucracy in exchange for policy choices and execution. So this is, um, there was a great documentary. Again, I can't remember the name of it because it's been years since I've seen it. And it was on this, basically this iron triangle and the revolving door that exists within Washington, D.C. Now, the revolving door is um, a term used for uh, basically politicians going, becoming politicians and then joining an interest group. Or, you know, somebody is, say, like the head of the FDA, and then they go be a CEO for a pharmaceutical company, and then they kind of go back. So it's just this revolving door. They just go back and forth. They just trade spots, but they stay within this iron triangle. Um, and you can go to opensecrets.com um, and they will basically have a score for somebody's revolving door. So you can see all the lobbyists and everybody, the the amount of revolving door. And it creates this kind of incestuous relationship where they all know each other and they're friends and they're just trading favors back and mm-hmm. forth in this iron triangle. So in this documentary, it was, um, now mind you, this was pre-COVID. This is pre-COVID. It was like 2018 I saw this. So it was on um, these women who had suffered, um, all, you know, you see it on TV, like, have you been a victim of, you know, this illness or this uh, medical malpractice? What these women were, they had received a transvaginal mesh implant. And I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to get into the reason they got it and all that. But they received this implant that was highly experimental and they had all sorts of problems. They stopped doing this. There's tons of problems, like literally life altering problems that these women suffered from. And it's very tragic. And it's really, it really is a shame to see what happened to a lot of these women. And, um, they started digging into how they got approved through the FDA. And it comes back to this iron triangle. So you'd have, um, medical companies, these medical device companies, these you know, pharmaceutical, because it wasn't all just transvaginal mess. It was some other products, um, kind of all in that family. But I remember that one specifically. 
they would um, lobby in Congress for support, pass that support back to the FDA for funding. The FDA would take money and they would approve this. So long story short, they were getting approval on these products. So the interest group representing this medical, these medical devices was getting um, special regulation and special treatment to fast track the approvals on these um, devices that had all sorts of glaring issues that were overlooked by the FDA because the FDA was getting extra funding because these um, companies were lobbying in Congress. So again, it goes back to this iron triangle. And this is where it gets kind of dirty in Washington, D.C. And you hear terms like the swamp thrown around. It's because this money just gets passed along. And who's the victim of it? Ultimately, the interest group was not serving the interest of these women. This in, this interest group was serving the interest of this very large medical device company that was um, pushing through mm-hmm. approvals that should never have been given in the first place. The FDA was fast tracking and approving when they never should have been through a process that. And I think the Netflix documentary was showing like um, some of the reviews that they were doing because it's it was videotaped. And I guess they did a FOIA request. They were just like, "Oh yeah, it's okay, good." and you know, a lot of it hadn't been peer reviewed. There's questions on how that they were actually um, reviewing this technology and these devices and never should have been done, but it did. And this is where money gets dirty. And this is where people need to pay attention. And an astute and an observant populace would not allow this to happen. Yeah. This is why people become conspiracy theorists, by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's inklings of this and it's like they can smell no something. Trust. Exactly. No trust. That's what we're having today. Now, uh, there was a study that was just released on um, some of the Pfizer experiments on pregnant women. 44% miscarried. 44%. Yeah. That's not a statistical um, like blip. That it, It's not yeah. insignificant. It's not even something that you need to say, well, this is a risk. It's like we need to stop this and figure out what is going on. How in the hell did it get through? Oh, you mean the uh, CEO of Pfizer was the head of the FDA a few years ago? Oh, you mean Pfizer in 2021 spent $10 million in 2021 alone. They had 86 lobbyists. 68 of them are number, you know, it's the revolvers, those that have gone back and forth between Congress and uh, different bureaucratic organizations and regulators. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How in the world can you say that, yeah, this was all clean and above board and it was done on the behalf of, it was done in the best interest of the American people. Hmm. $10 billion to get a $27 billion return on investment. That's how. Yeah. It's, uh, we definitely one day should do an episode on big pharma. The history of, of of American pharmaceutical companies. <laughs> I would love to know how on earth did we get to where we're at today? So I, I say all this not to highlight Net Pfizer necessarily, even though there's some ethical questions there. It's really to highlight the fact that there is a lot of money concentrated and staying um, not just in elections, which there is, and it's getting more and more expensive, but also in these interest groups and these lobbyists. And having rules around elections are great, but then they have to be enforceable. And we need to put parameters around them with the understanding that it is free speech, but it needs to be equal speech at the same time. And as progressive as that may sound, um, Mm. 
that's the most progressive thing I've ever said. So but you say, know that's what? the most communist thing you've ever said. I think it should be. It, it, <laughs> we want to talk about equity and being equitable and all this, having the same desired outcome. Here, here you go. Um, and then apply that same logic to interest groups. And, you know, the left's always screaming about the NRA and then the right's like Planned Parenthood. You know, it's. Well, that's okay. You can scream about them, but, but why don't we just legislate some rules around how much, hey, how much can a congressman uh, accept this revolving door? You don't, it doesn't exist. You can't do that. Like, let's make that illegal. Um, let's make certain, um, you know, FaceTime, you know, e simple like meetings, gifts. I know, like, if you want to sell to the government and you want to sell to a government entity, like the rules, it's crazy the rules you have to go to to prove that you're not like bribing them. You can't even like, send them gifts, but interest groups, lobbyists, somehow they figure out a way around it. Uh, these 86 guys from fi on Pfizer's payroll are making six figures for a reason. They're getting it done. Where's the money going? How do politicians make millions of dollars making $140,000 a year? Yeah. I, uh, I was looking at a, um, a new poll. Let me try to find it here. A poll, yeah, here we go, came out sometime back in July from the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics. Essentially, this poll found that a majority of Americans of both political parties believe that the U.S. government is corrupt. Uh, it was... Uh, 73% of poll respondents who identify as a strong Republican said that the government is corrupt. Um, and so, oh, here's here's a better number. 66% of Republican respondents said the government's corrupt. 63% of independents and 46% of Democrats said the government is corrupt. That is, like you said earlier, that's not an insignificant number. And I personally believe that it all boils down to trust. I think if you were to ask all of those respondents, why do you think the government's corrupt? You'd probably get a pretty decent spread of answers. You know, from the Republicans, you'd probably get something about election interference uh, from the or not election interference, because uh, that's when if you hear the phrase in election interference, that's typically a person on the left saying that because they like to blame the Russians for interfering with elections. If you hear something about voter fraud, then that's typically someone on the right, because people on the right believe that Democrats are like buying votes and ballot stuffing, et cetera. It all depends on who won the election. <laughs> the trust, the trust, you'll see the trust levels fluctuate. And it's funny, yeah. like, like growing up, I remember, you know, it was big, you know, now it's like big pharma. That's like the one that everybody's onto, obviously, because COVID and all that. But before it was like blood and oil, you know, blood and oil. Yeah, the big oil, they're, they're, they're sending us to war for the, you know, defend oil. Oil was like the worst. Uh, yeah. To be honest, I don't know if it's their lobbyists figuring out ways around it or they just have a great marketing campaign. Oil has kind of taken a backseat to pharma and some of these other, and you know, big tech. It's taken kind of a backseat to them. I'm sure they appreciate not having as much pressure. But yeah, I mean, growing up, it was like, you know, rage against the machine right. would be like, oh, it's for blood and oil. And, you know, they just scream. And now they're telling you that do what the government says, go get vaccinated. I just think it's funny that. You know, when the, it was George Bush, they hated the government when it's 
Joe Biden, they're like, hey, yeah. everybody, uh, get in line and, and go do what the government says. They have what's your best interests at heart. Yeah. So let me know this is this is worth because I, I hope that we use this podcast and I hope our listeners understand that like history kind of dispels a lot of bad information out there. And this is worth talking or at least worth mentioning, you know, in the 2003 invasion of Iraq, a lot of people are saying we're doing it for the oil. It's like that's based on a historical understanding that like Western companies stand to make money from Middle Eastern oil, which was entirely true back in like the early 1900s when you had Dutch Shell uh, in uh, British Petroleum BP, they were making tons of money. Uh, you know, back in World War II, both the United States, France, and or sorry, the UK, France, and Russia all invaded Iran and Iraq uh, so that they could get access to the oil prior to the Axis powers doing it. So that did happen. the The interesting thing about American oil production is that the vast majority of American money and oil is all in domestic production. <laughs> the, uh, the, the sole reason why the price of gas plummeted beginning in the Obama administration, by the way, th- towards the very tail end of it in the Obama administration and, uh, and really during the Trump administration was a combination of technological innovation for getting oil shale domestically and during the Trump administration deregulation in, uh, of the of the energy sector. That's what loyal the price of oil. Therefore, America doesn't need to invade the Middle East in order to get oil. We've got tons of it here in our own borders, whereas the Brits, the Dutch, uh, etc., they were the ones historically that invaded Iraq uh, and Iran and other places to get their oil. So I, I say all that to say we did not invade Iraq in 2003 for oil. Just that's not why (laughs) the price of oil oil and the cost of oil, the price at the pump that you pay, um, it changes hands so many times. And there's a massive supply chain that um, your average American has no idea how to explain, like how you take oil from the ground, from the shale and turn it into gas that you put in your car. They don't understand like the expense behind that. And it's also extremely speculative. So like they will look into the future and say, we're going to get slammed by this, this regulation that's coming down. You know, it's, it's being talked about. We're going to get slammed by this or, oh, we can sense that we're going to have someone in the office who is going to deregulate and allow us to drill here. Or, oh, we found this new, like you said, new technology, new drilling. Um, then the price will start to come down. So it's very speculative. The price you pay now is what, them it's basically them hedging against what they think is going to happen in the future that is my like economics 101 high school level understanding of it but it's not always like hey we're going to invade iraq and suddenly oil the price of oil is going to plummet because it didn't if you remember uh i will i will throw that little tangent under the broader uh, category well of you know corruption. what let's let's it's start talking about that tax and <laughs> Well, big oil. Se, but- well, let's see. How does that relate to big? Let's bring it back in. How does that relate? <laughs> um, 
if we have all, why are we not able to drill the massive, the, what is it? The Odessa Permian Shale, there, like West Texas, uh, that area, there's a massive, massive oil. We have tons of oil available. Mm. Why are we not drilling it here? Why do we have to drill? You know, the, um, yeah. what was the, uh, I can't remember the oil rig that exploded, um, off the, co- the Gulf coast back in like 2010, maybe, um, that caused, but it was like a mile under the water. It's like, well, of course, how do you expect, of course, something bad is going to happen. They have to drill down a mile under the water. Of course, if there is some, something does go wrong, it's going to be an ecological disaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a, well, I want to, I want to do a quick book shout out. <laughs> Uh, I am a huge fan of the Hoover Institution. All right. Uh, almost anything Hoover puts out is great and probably one of my favorites. I don't want to say the best, but he might be the best. Hoover scholar is Thomas Sowell. And Thomas Sowell has written a book called Economics or Economic Fact and Fallacies. And one of the things that he talks about is how the environmental movement for decades uh, has been after uh, various forms of production. Oil's one of them, uh, one of the big ones. Uh, he, Sol even talks about you know the the aesthetic environmentalists that that don't like urban sprawl simply for the way that it looks. And they say that, uh, you know, Sol talks about like, this is all kind of silly because the economy suffers. And and because the economy suffers, people's uh, standard of living um, suffers. And we're cool with people living in poverty so that we don't have something ugly, i.e. urban sprawl. Or in your, as you know, kind of to your point, we, uh, you know, we don't pump our own oil for like a better words because of environmental reasons, which is making it extremely expensive for people to buy gas, which means people can't pay rent. <laughs> so they live in shanties. Well, it, it's funny. Yeah. Most of our people that claim to be environmentalists are like, well, super wealthy, super wealthy. <laughs> they, well, a lot of them have the means to become insulated. They can defend themselves from any sort of, they can shield themselves from the economic ramifications of their actions and their decisions. We will drill. Okay. That oil is getting drilled. I hate to tell you that that oil is getting drilled, whether it's here for a lot less expensive and something that we can control, um, or it's going to get drilled in Saudi Arabia under horrible conditions. You want to talk about human rights violations. How do you think those the workers there are treated? Oh, the lithium mines that are needed for your electric vehicle's car battery. Have you seen the lithium mines and the ecological disaster that those are? And the people who know, I don't think we've ever really studied what's going to happen to those workers that are working, that are having to work in a lithium mine. I know lithium can't be good for you. So that kind of exposure is going to be terrible. Look at, um, if you if you ever drive on Interstate 40, there it's going through Amarillo and that part of North Texas. It's kind of this weird sort of beauty of just like openness, like you can just see. But you know what you see now? You just see thousands of these wind turbines. What well, and hell, last year they couldn't provide enough power, and half of them froze and broke apart because they were not up. They were not up to. Um, it's just not efficient and they're not they're not doing anything so what do they do they've ruined the natural beauty of that part of the country 
they kill animals. They like they kill birds all the time. Um, and it's how much energy did it take for us to build that? How much energy does it actually produce? Not that much. Sorry, yeah, my little diatribe. No, I um, yeah, I I think it's safe to say to 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 settle. You know, Colin and Jay's opinion is the one of the largest special interest groups of which the wealthy are paying a, a humongous uh, role in is the climate change group in Washington, D.C. And they are doing, they're, they're ruining, not ruining, they're doing harm to the American economy, which is impacting our lives. It's not impacting theirs. I, I hate to say it that way, but, uh, because I, I really don't want to be one to be vicious or you know uncharitable and on the on the podcast but I'm a huge fan of protecting the environment I'm a huge fan of being good stewards of the environment I think that's something that we should worry about but at the same time to your point about lithium mines I remember seeing a study uh, this was this is probably 10 plus years old but of all the vehicles that do damage to the environment, the most damaging one was the Toyota Prius, precisely because the batteries, you know, the the mining that it takes to to produce those batteries is just is wreaking havoc in Africa, primarily where those rare earth materials are. And it's sad. The it's sad that if we actually want to protect the environment, um pumping oil in the Gulf of Mexico or, you know, what is it? Um, the pipeline in, in Alaska that we've shut down. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but yeah, the, I mean, I'm all, I, I'm not anti electric cars. If, if the market determines that that's where we want to go, I'm not saying we shouldn't go electric cars, but Saying that we have to go electric cars, i.e. batteries, for the purpose of saving the environment is willful ignorance. <laughs> and it's to your shame. point about the market dictating that, um, I'm not going to be one of those weird nerds that says Elon Musk can do no wrong. But in this instance, yeah, Elon seriously. Musk could come out... <laughs> Elon Musk could come out with a... And is doing a much better job of coming up with a, a solution to... Um, in you know in the environmental hazard that could be caused by cars at a in way better than any government legislation ever will ever will despite whatever every interest group is saying um you know it anyway yeah but you know to your point i think we do need to be good stewards i think there's just other ways to do it rather than via government legislation which is done um, at the behest of special interest groups. And here's another thing people need to understand about a lot of these bills that are passed. You know, you can look up some of the like Solyndra, that was like a $500 million bust that the government funded back uh, during Obama's presidency. Um, this new bill that's been signed, that money is going to be taken from everyday Americans and it's going to be given to whom? Big businesses who are already hedging themselves and creating a means to build a product that is not necessarily um, going to be the most green solution. It's not going to lower inflation. It's going to be a solution that they have campaigned and, and lobbied for. 
Jay, I, you know, I think we're, I think we've pretty much beaten a dead horse with this one. The point we want to make to our listeners, whether you're an American citizen or whether you are uh, an international citizen, whatever country you belong to, or you live in, you have to ask yourself how much money is too much money in politics. Do I want billions of dollars being spent on my elections? Do I really want millions of dollars being spent on my elections? Um, I know there's a huge delta between the UK and the US with how much money is spent on the previous election cycle. Um, you know, in America, that's something we really need to take a hard look at. And you know, internationally, you could look to our country as an example of say, hey, maybe we don't want to do it that way. Um, and then we need to hold our uh, politicians accountable. Jay, you made a great point earlier about they need you, but they don't care about you necessarily. Yeah. And that's really true because they need your vote, but they need to enact a policy based on whoever has given them a lot of money or whichever interest group is in their ear the most. We need to be, he we need to protect ourselves against that as an American people by being educated on the topics in, and involved in the decision-making process, whether that's through elections, town hall meetings, heck, just writing your congressman or congresswoman and letting them know how you feel about it. Make your voice heard as much as you can. That's really the only protection that you have, and that should be all you need. And we need to demand that of our, of our elected representatives, that they enact something to protect the voice of their constituents, because unfortunately, when money is involved, not all speech is equal speech. Right. Yeah, that's that's a really good summary here. Hopefully, we've drawn out some of the nuances between, like, hey, here's some good things going on. You know, it all started back with labor unions during uh, the FDR era, uh, and this is kind of understanding where we're at today. But it is nuanced, right? Like there's a freedom of speech concern here. Uh, there's also a, okay, when is someone's speech a little bit louder than someone else's? Should the wealthy be allowed to dominate politics? Do we be start becoming an authoritarian society when we start doing this? You know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, it's, a, it's a complicated issue. We, I don't even know if we scratched the surface uh, in this episode, but uh, we hoped uh, you learned something. I certainly did. Uh, so thanks, Colin, for uh, for doing the research on this one and helping us understand uh, how money and politics kind of uh, kind of work together. Hopefully, hopefully, no one is becoming a conspiracy theorist by listening to our episode. We are anti-conspiracies uh, and pro facts uh, and pro research and pro data. So if you've got that. Um, uh, do the research for yourself uh, and let us know what you think. Uh, hey, with that, uh, that that concludes this episode. We really appreciate uh, your feedback and your support. Hey, if you like this episode and you like what we're doing, please leave us a five-star review or and give us some feedback. Uh, leave us some, uh, some comments and we'll try to interact with you the best that we can. Uh, you can follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, uh, Twitter, and Facebook at the Loins of History. Uh, the Each handle is some variation of Loins of History, so you can find us there. Uh, and lastly, you can support this podcast. If you like what we're doing and you believe that more people should be listening uh, to, to the Loins of History, that if you believe in our mission – of informing current events with history 
uh, please consider supporting us uh, here. Uh, we don't like running ads on our podcast. I listened to a podcast the other day that had an ad at the beginning, an ad at the middle, an ad at the end. And I was like, this sucks. I do not like listening to ads during my podcast and we don't want to do that. So please help support us. Uh, you can do that two ways. The best way is through Patreon. We've got a Patreon page. We can interact with you there better. Uh, it's just a $5 tier, one $5 tier. Support us there monthly. You can have access to our community, access to uh, Colin and myself. You can tell us what sucked, what was good, etc. cetera. Uh, and we, we would definitely appreciate that support. You can also support us through our podcast host, anchor.fm. And the link is in the show notes uh, for both of those. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ones of History. And we look forward to seeing you next week. 